Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina wa Habibi Qulubina wa Shafi'i Nufusina Abil Qasim al-Mustafa Muhammad wa ala Ahli Baytihi al-Tayyibin al-Tahirin Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum Sallallahu alayka ya Aba Abdillah My condolences on the beginning and the start of the holy month of Muharram and continued by and followed by the month of Safar, these months of Aza and mourning for Aba Abdullah al Hussein alayhi salam. In these ta- in these times that we're in, we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq to make the most of whatever we have access to of information, of majadis that'll be online, and whatever else is going on, to benefit as much as we can, to learn as much as we can, and to be touched as what as much as we can by Imam Hussain alayhi salatu wassalam. History, brothers and sisters, is full of events. Some of them are significant, some of them are great, some are less significant, some are insignificant. We look, out th- we look throughout history, we find that there have been times that things have taken place that have changed the course of history. And the history of Islam is no exception to this rule as well. When we look at the history of Islam, we find that there are very great occasions that took place, happy ones and sad ones. Whether it's uh, during the Holy Prophet's time, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, for example, the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, Khandaq, things like that that took place. Whether it is the marriage of Ali ibn Abi Talib and Fatima Zahra, whether it's the uh, the Sulh of Hudaybiyyah, whether it's the Bay'ah of Ar-Ridwan, and so on and so forth. Fathu Mecca, all of these different things that take place during the Prophet's time. Some were happy, some were sad. Lessons were learned, lives sometimes were lost, and so on and so forth. After the Prophet's demise as well, we have incidents and events that take place. Some are happy, some are sad. Um, And lessons are learned from them as well. Till today, historians, Muslimin, Mu'mineen are analyzing these events that took place. During the times of the Imams, after the Ghaibah uh, of the 12th Imam, till today we, ha- we have these events taking place. And so out of all of these events that took place in the history of Islam, from the Prophet's time when he was alive all the way till today, without a doubt, the most significant, if not, um, you can say, yes, the most significant maybe, and one can argue is that of Ashura and Karbala. What happened? in Ashura and Karbala is that yes there was a massacre that took place now some people might ask they'll say that okay don't massacres always take place if you are saying that this is a very important and significant event that took place in the history of Islam there have been many other massacres even during the time of the Imams you will have similar things that took place what sets this apart from the rest? Why give it so much significance? Why discuss it for so much? For so many years, 1400 years now, still people are remembering Ashura and Karbala. And I think the answer to that is pretty clear. The answer to that, I'll give an example. It's like what happened to, let's say, I don't know. Let's talk about let John F. Kennedy got shot. All right, no one's going to say, hey, you know, People get shot every day. What's so significant? Just another person got shot. People will answer. They'll say, well, it's not just anybody else. This is a president of a country that has gotten shot. 
and one of the biggest countries, yeah, one of the most powerful countries in the world. So this person, their rank, their status, yes, dictates how great or significant that event is or that tragedy is. Now that's just an example. Of course, uh, that individual is nowhere close to Abu Abdullah Hussein. That was just an example to be to illustrate what is meant. So here with Abu Abdullah, it's not just any other massacre. Abu Abdullah Hussein, as one of the hadith from the Imam says, when he was killed, when he was murdered, it's as if all of the uh, companions of the cloak, Ashabul Kisa, were killed. The Imam, he says this. And when he's asked what he's meant by it, what he, what he means by it, uh, he says that, well, when the Holy Prophet passed away, yes, uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib was there, Fatima Zahra was there, Al Hasanain were there, alayhim was salam. But when, and then Ali ibn Abi Talib became shaheed, or excuse me, Fatima Zahra, she left this dunya. Then we had Ali alayhi salam, we had Al Hasanain. But when Ali also became murdered, Al Hasan also became murdered, there was one more individual left from these Ashabul Kisa. And with that one's departure, it's as if this chapter of Ashabul Kisa was closed. Yes, Abu Abdullah Hussein is revered by all sects and all schools of thought of Islam. And so this individual, this last, uh, this last reminder of the Holy Prophet, this last uh, individual that reminded everyone of those before him of the great individuals of Ashabul Kisa, he, once he left, it was as if everyone was affected. All right, so I don't need to get into how high, how great Abu Abdullah Hussein is. And that is what sets Ashura apart from the rest of the events of history. Yes, it's up there. If someone's going to make a list, Yes, it'll be up there at the top of that list next to a few other events that took place in the history of Islam. And that's why we read in Ziyarat Ashura, it says, لَقَدْ عَظُمَتِ الرَّزِيَّةِ وَجَلَّتْ وَعَظُمَتِ الْمُصِيبَةُ بِكَ عَلَيْنَا وَعَلَى جَمِيعِ أَهْلِ الْإِسْلَامِ This was a great uh, tragedy upon all of the people of Islam. وَجَلَّتْ وَعَظُمَتْ مُصِيبَتُكَ فِي السَّمَوَاتِ Not only on, in this dunya, but it also affected Ahl al-Samawat, the inhabitants of the heavens. Uh, and so there's no doubt in the fact that this is one of the most significant, if not the most significant uh, event that took place in the history of Islam. So now the questions will start coming. There will be questions uh, of why did this happen? How could the Muslim Ummah reach such a point that the only grandson left of the Holy Prophet is slaughtered in such a manner? There are different approaches in discussing this matter. Um, one of them is that which a lot of people will do, and it's the easiest one. It's very black and white, I would say. Where the people will say, okay, let us see who were the ones who actually drew the swords on Aba Abdullah Hussein alayhi salam. That way we'll figure out who was behind this tragedy, this great event that took place in the history of Islam. Let's identify who they were. Okay, one of them was uh, Shimr, or as some say, Shamir, bin Dil Jawshan. Yes, that commander of part of the army um, of uh, Ubaidullah bin Ziyad. Who else was involved? 
who else was giving commands on the battlefield? Yes, uh, the son of Sa'ad bin Waqqas, Umar ibn Sa'ad. Yes, who else was involved? This person, that person. So we will list all of those people who did, who committed a crime on the day of Ashura. And we'll say these are the ones who were behind it. These are, are the culprits. These are the ones that our la'na is going to be upon. This is something that you can say today almost all Muslims will agree on. This is one approach to figure out what happened. Yes, there's another approach. We'll say, no, 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 let's not just look at the ones that were on the battlefield. There were some who were not directly involved, but they were there still in one way or another. In their, in, at least their heart was there. Like a person like Ubaidullah bin Ziyad. Yes, he's sitting in Kufa as the governor of Kufa. And he's the one who is uh, pushing for Ashura to take place and what happened in Karbala to take place. He's the one who's giving commands to Umar ibn Sa'ad and telling him that if Umar ibn Sa'ad doesn't finish the job, he'll be replaced by somebody else and so on and so forth. That's also an approach. So one approach is to look directly who was involved, who drew the swords. Another approach is to see, no, no, who was giving the commands from Kufa or wherever, wherever else. There will be some who will go a step further and they'll say, no, no, no. True, Ubaidullah bin Ziyad is giving direct orders from Kufa. But Yazid is also sitting in Sham. He's the one who got the ball rolling on all of this to begin with. He's the one who asked for bay'ah. And if there is no bay'ah given by Abu Abdullah to resort to um, force and to either the Imam submits or the Imam, you know, loses his life over this. So there are some who will go farther. They'll go to Yazid and they'll say Yazid was the problem. Although here, it's unfortunate to say that you, it's, this is not something unanimous anymore when it comes to Yazid. You'll find some Muslims out there, maybe not a majority, but they are there who will say, no, we're not sure if Yazid actually wanted to go this far. But they will say that, yes, la'na on Ubaidullah and may Allah uh, curse the killers of Aba Abdullah on the day of Ashura. Now, as I am saying this, brothers and sisters, I don't want anyone to feel like and to understand things like this and say that okay so what we're going to be discussing is who should we be sending our la'na on no not at all the ziyara of ashura has already taught us that we want to as shias we want to strengthen our backbone and understand things the way they really are yes we will be going to our sources our scholars our historians to see what was going on but i'm not done yet here i shared maybe two or three approaches but there are more approaches now. And that's what we want to talk about in this, in to, uh, this uh, lecture and ensuing lectures, inshallah ta'ala, if we have the tawfiq. To figure out, no, no, what actually went wrong? What was the main reason that Ashura took place? What were those main things that led up to it? That if they weren't there, these elements were not there, Ashura would not have probably taken place. That's what we're after. We're trying to go back and see Yes, which what the dots are, how they were connected to each other, and the outcome being what happened in Karbala on the 10th of Muharram. All right, so having said all of that, another approach is no, let's see, let's be a little more analytical, let's put our emotions aside and try to figure things out. Yes, our emotions will try to stay with and focus on the ones who were directly involved. We hate Shamar, we hate this person, we hate that person. But there's an approach that says, let us see 
who the Imams are also talking about in this ziyarah of Ashura, for example. What names are mentioned in addition to the names of Shimr or Umar ibn Sa'ad or Ubaidullah bin Ziyad and so on. What other names do we have in Ziyarah Ashura? And what allowed, because there's a lot of evil people out there. What allowed evil, these evil people to do what they needed to do on that day? Yes, there are a lot of evil people out there, brothers and sisters. Why is it that not everyone is able to exhibit, exhibit that evil that they have in them and exercise it? Why? What is it? Well, the, the, the grounds aren't set sometimes for people to be able to do what they need to do if they're evil, for them, for their evil to manifest. But there are some who get that opportunity. That opportunity doesn't just come out of thin air. That opportunity, yes, the foundations for it are laid after some time. A point comes where an evil person will do something evil. Yes, so there were these evil people out there. How did they get that opportunity? This is something that our historians Yes, will explain to us one by one. They will say, okay, this and then this and then this happened. One, two, three, four, seven, eight, nine, ten points add up and you get Ashura in the end. This a Shia youth should at least know and be aware of these maybe seven or eight or ten points. These, uh, these points in time, in that timeline of Islamic history, that led to Ashura. That's what we're after, inshallah, in these lectures. So when we go to Ziyarat Ashura, what do we find? We see names, brothers and sisters. We see names. Which names do we see? We say we see Alu Ziyad. We see Alu Marwan. Yes, we see Bani Umayyata Qatibah. Qatibah means all of them. These are names we also see. Yes, we see Shimr. We see Umar ibn Sa'ad. We see... Ubaidullah bin Ziyad. And it's easy to understand why these names are mentioned in Ziyarat Ashura. And these people are in trouble. But what about these other three? Alu Ziyadin, wa Alu Marwan, wa Bani Umayyah. These names, were they directly involved? When we say Bani Umayyah, or when the Imams teach us that Bani Umayyah were a problem, how is that the case? Because out of all of the Bani Umayyah, one might argue that only Yazid had something to do with Ashura. So what's going on here? When it says Alu Ziyad, yes, the family of Ziyad, the ancestors of Ziyad, however you want to translate it, the only one that was involved from this clan, this tribe, this family, this family tree, is who? Is Ubaidullah bin Ziyad. His father Ziyad had nothing to do with Ashura. Yes, his father Ziyad wasn't alive when Ashura took place. Alu Marwan even. So what's going on here? We have to figure out what's going on. The Imams had something in mind when they mentioned these names. Yes, it's not just because the Imams are angry and they want to, you know, call out these individuals and these family families. No, no, it's more than that. It seems that they want to also educate their Shia. That look, these people were also, they had something to do with this with what happened on Ashura. Or else there's no point in bringing these names in the Ziyarah of Ashura. So what we get so far though, from Ziyarat Ashura and other things, other hadiths, is that, okay, Bani Umayyah were a problem. Bani Marwan are a problem. 
Alu Ziyad a problem? Now, the, out of these three, I want to talk about Alu Ziyad in a, a little bit. They're not the focus. The focus is Bani Umayyah and Bani Marwan. I want to talk about a little more in our lecture today. Uh, Alu Ziyad, <clears throat> with them, the problem was that, yes, Ziyad, the father of Ubaidullah bin Ziyad, he was on the side of Amir al Mu'minin all the way till the Shahada of Amir al-Mu'mineen. And they say even after Amir al-Mu'mineen, during Imam al-Hasan's time even, he was approached by Muawiyah uh, to come onto Muawiyah's side. Yet still he you know, hung in there. But eventually he went to Muawiyah's side. It's a long story. But in short, he had a lot to do and almost everything to do with identifying because he himself was one of the followers of Ali before. He had a lot to do with what uh, happened later in identifying the Shia of Kufa and assassinating them and murdering them. This person, if he was not there as an aid to Muawiyah, yes, things would not have been the way they turned out to be. And so Alu Ziyad it not only encompasses Ubaidullah, the son of Ziyad, yes, it also encompasses Ziyad himself. And to talk about Ziyad, it requires another lecture but he's not the main culprit either, it seems. He had a lot to do with helping out the main culprits. Yes? And allowing them to do what they did in the future of whatever crimes it was. What we want to focus on is the Bani Umayyah and Bani Marwan. One thing I have to say first, that when we say Bani Umayyah, the children of Umayyah and the descendants of Umayyah, versus Bani Marwan, the descendants of Marwan, we have to understand one thing. Bani Umayyah, this, this tribe has different clans, or let's say it's a clan within the Quraysh that has different branches. Bani Umayyah encompasses Bani Marwan. Let's not think that Bani Marwan are separate from Bani Umayyah. No, Bani Umayyah were part of, excuse me, Bani Marwan were part of and a branch of the Bani Umayyah. Bani Umayyah also encompasses Bani Sufyan, the children of Sufyan. Yes, Sufyan bin Harb. Yes, or uh, yes, Abu Sufyan. And so when, it, when the hadith or the ziyara singles out Marwan and the Marwanites, there's also a reason there as well. We need to talk about all of this. What is going on here? Bani Marwan specifically, and then Bani Umayyah generally, and we have Bani Sufyan. They're not mentioned by the name Bani Sufyan in the ziyarah, but you have the name of Abu Sufyan in Ziyarat Ashura. You have the name of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan in Ziyarat Ashura. You have the name of Yazid bin Muawiyah in Ziyarat Ashura. So you have all these names there. And these are the Bani Sufyan. Okay? So all in all, what we want to talk about is how the main problem throughout these 50 years or so after the Holy Prophet passed away, they were the Bani Umayyah. How is it that if these people are the problem, according to the Shi'i school of thought, of course, other schools of thought might disagree with us, but brothers and sisters, as I said, I want to look at it from a Shi'i perspective. Sometimes there are some who want to learn certain history in order to convince others. That's also one way of looking at history. Sometimes, no, you go to your scholars, you go to your historians, and when I say scholars, I'm talking about the great scholars. See what they say, read their books, 
that has refined those raw historical sources to come to conclusions and explanations to things and to show discrepancies. Yes, you, so that sometimes we go to history just to learn from these greats who've done this work to connect the dots for ourselves at least. Not worrying about, okay, is this going to be convincing of others? Is this going to cause others to embrace Shiism or not? No, that's a different story. And of course, we will do this as much as we can with keeping as much respect as we can for other schools of thought. Yes, but Yabi as Shia believed that there were mistakes that were made. There were problems that took place. And as a result of those slowly led up to what happened in Karbala uh, 50 years after the Holy Prophet's demise. If Bani Umayyah came to power eventually, who were the main problem? According to our Imams, according to history and historians, if they came to power after they were the weakest and the lowest of the low, then there must have been some things that went wrong during the time, during the time after the Holy Prophet that allowed these individuals to come to power for Ashura to eventually take place. Sometimes there were mistakes that took place during the time after the Holy Prophet. Bani Umayyah had nothing to do with that. Yes, they had nothing to do with that. But eventually it led and helped them out in doing what they needed to do later. So, some of the reasons why Bani Umayyah eventually took power had to do with total luck. It was luck. They had nothing to do with it. But after a few mistakes were made by the Muslim Ummah, slowly the Bani Umayyah were able to creep in. And even them creeping in was not a matter of skill by them. The Muslim Ummah left things open for them to come in. And once they came in, they spread. Eventually it led to Ashura taking place. This is what we want to talk about in these nights and days that we have these lectures. Now, I do have to say this before I actually get into some of the things that I want to share with you very quickly about Bani Umayyah and how the Muslim scholars and how Nahjul Balagha looks at the Bani Umayyah. What I need to say is this, that we have to remember that the Prophet, when he conquered Mecca and came into Mecca, what happened was that those people who were in power, who were of the Bani Umayyah, like Abu Sufyan, yes, these people had no choice but to submit to the Holy Prophet. A Shia, yes, who reads history, when they see that how staunch of an enemy Abu Sufyan was from the beginning, from day one of the Prophet's call to Islam, Till the end, yes, which is the conquest of Mecca until the death of the Prophet, when they look and they see how a person like Abu Sufyan was towards the Holy Prophet in the Battle of Badr, in the Battle of Uhud, Battle of Khandaq. In the Battle of Khandaq, Abu Sufyan came to finish off the Muslims. I mean, that was his ultimate goal. And yet he failed miserably. The Muslims, the Shia, when they read the history, when they look at history, what they find is, and what they conclude is, that okay, after all of these years of animosity, and then the Prophet eventually being the victor, coming into Mecca and conquering Mecca, it's not like now all of a sudden, Abu Sufyan and his family, Abu Sufyan and his descendants now, or cousins or whoever, are going to just fall in love with the Holy Prophet now that he's here. And we have said our shahadatain. Yes, we have said Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Now everything is good. You know, we're friends now. No, no, the grudges, 
the ahqad are going to be there. The ahqad badriyah, yes, are going to be there. Those grudges that were established in the Battle of Badr when, when some of the closest to Muawiyah and Abu Sufyan were killed, yes, of the Bani Umayyah. So we have to understand how low these powerful individuals went and became to the point that the Prophet, when he conquered Mecca, he said, You go. I'm not going to take your lives. I'm not going to punish you for what you've done. Because you are free. You are free. That's how low they have gone that the Prophet has to um, favor them with freedom. Yes, and letting them off the hook. That's how low they've gone. So if they're going to make it back to the top again, no matter how much skill they have, it's going to happen over a period of time and it's going to happen with the help of mistakes of others. If others make mistakes, yes, according to the Shi'i school, if those mistakes are big enough, yes, Bani Umayyah are able to creep back in. Now, having said that, I want to illustrate how this matter of Bani Umayyah is something that is accepted, is something that we have literature for, um, at least from the Shia perspective, that the Bani Umayyah, yes, they were a problem. They were people who the Ma'sumin were worried about. Ma'sumin meaning the Holy Prophet Amirul Mu'minin salam. They were worried that these people, if they get enough momentum and get enough power and authority, there's going to be a problem. Yes. So I want to share with you five or six excerpts that we have from different uh, books um, regarding the Bani Umayyah and the problem that they were to, to Islam in the eyes of these individuals. The first of um, some of the literature that I have here, um, I'm going to be speaking about a couple about Bani Umayyah in general, and then Muawiyah in particular, and then Marwan in particular. It says here that uh, the great Mufassir of Quran Al-Alusi, Mahmud Al-Alusi, he, um, one of the, one, I, I have to say like his tafsir is a very nice tafsir to refer to. Um, of course, we, the Shia have their own Mufassirin as well. But when you want to get an idea about certain things, you, when, you take, when you check out uh, Ruh Al-Ma'ani of Al-Alusi, you find some good stuff in there too. Um, but we have to remember, he is, at the end of the day, he is a Salafi. I was reading about him a little bit, about how he embraced the teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah and the, the student of Ibn Taymiyyah. And even uh, was inclined towards, because he's not from too far back, he also was inclined towards the, um, the famous uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab as well. And so, um, in his tafsir, Ruh al-Ma'ani, when he's doing tafsir of Surah Isra verse 60, um, it talks about how the Prophet saw a dream and the Quran says, we made that dream a fitna for you. Yes, that verse is a tough verse to tackle for Mufassirin. What is meant here? And in that same verse, it talks about a cursed tree. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of who have said that the, what is meant by the cursed tree is the Zaqum tree of Jahannam. But there are also hadiths in Shi'i sources, of course, and in Sunni sources as well, that Al-Alusi has also brought in his tafsir, that no, this cursed tree is, this tree is the Banu Umayyah. And he explains, now, 
He explains the problem of Banu Umayyah, the problem that they were. And of course for him, he will exclude a person like Muawiyah, of course. He'll say Muawiyah wasn't like this, but Banu Umayyah in general. Yes, these individuals were problematic. He says, under this verse, he says, if we take the verse to be speaking about the Bani Umayyah, so he might be undecided about what the verse is exactly talking about, but he says, if we take it to mean that it's Banu Umayyah, and if the verse is speaking about Banu Umayyah, then the cursed tree and this curse that the Quran is mentioning to us, this is the reason for it. What is the reason for it? It says, the la'an sent upon them in it will be due to them spilling innocent blood and their rape of respected women and seizing wealth unlawfully and denying people their rightful rights and their alteration of Islamic laws and judging through means of other than what Allah has revealed unto His Prophet and other great ugly acts al-qaba'ih al-idham and al-makhazi al-jisam Huge embarrassments that can never be forgotten as long as there are days and nights. So he, he says, look, I'm not sure about this verse. Is it talking about the zakum or is it talking about the family tree of Banu Umayyah? But if someone was to choose and was inclined towards the tafsir of this verse to be the tree or a family tree of Banu Umayyah, then the, the, it being mal'oon is for this reason. Because the Banu Umayyah, they had these issues, man. There was a big problem here. Yes. So Banu Umayyah in general, we have this. And I mean, I just selected a few. There's a, there's a lot that you'll find historians, Mufassirin will be talking about. But as I said before, brothers and sisters, there will be some, they're not, it doesn't seem that there would be a majority who might, you know, they might say that, no, no, Banu Umayyah all in all were after helping Islam and weren't as problematic as you might think. We as Shia and others of, Ahl, of Ahl-Sunnah as well, uh, will, will beg to differ. And we will say, no, we are convinced otherwise. Yes, there are some who will also have a problem of Ahl-Sunnah, will have a problem with Muawiyah. They're a minority, I would say. Just based on the very limited, uh, not research, but just looking around that I've done, you won't find uh, too many that will have uh, huge issues. And if they do, they're usually called out. They're not seen as mainstream. A person like, for example, Sheikh Hassan bin Farhan al-Maliki. Of course, they will see him as a heretic. And he will be dismissed. As, and they will call him a jahil and so on. And people like that. But all in all, this idea of Banu Umayyah being a problem is there. Imam Ali and Nahj al-Balagha regarding the Banu Umayyah in general. In Khutbah 92 or 93, based on different prints that it has, he says, beware that the worst mischief I fear for you is the mischief of Banu Umayyah. This mischief is blind and creates darkness. Its sway is general, but its ill effects are for particular people. So everyone is going to be affected negatively. But more specifically, the, 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 there are a particular set of people who will be really affected by them and hurt by them. He's talking about the pious ones and the Shia and so on. He who remains clear-sighted in it will be affected by tragedy and he who remains blind in it will avoid all tragedy. What does that mean? It means that when the Banu Umayyah are, have taken over, there will be some who see through everything and are, are able to identify that there's a problem with them. These people who are able, able to identify the problem of Banu Umayyah, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to get hurt. Tragedies will befall them. 
because they usually won't be sitting silent. They'll be speaking out, you know. But he says, if you're blinded by them and you don't know what's going on, then you'll be fine. You don't have to worry about anything. By Allah, you will find Bani Umayyah after me, worst people, the worst people for yourselves. Like the old unruly she-camel who bites with its mouth, beats with its forelegs, kicks with its hind legs and refuses to be milked. They would remain over you till they would leave among you only those who benefit them or those who do not harm them. Their calamity will continue till your seeking help from them would become like the seeking of help by the slave from his master or of the follower from the leader. So it's interesting how the imam is foreseeing this. He can tell that, look, after him probably this is going to be the case. Their mischief would come to you like evil-eyed fear and pre-Islamic fragments, wherein there would be neither minaret or guidance nor any sign of salvation to be seen. Yes, this is the bala, this is the fitna uh, that he says of Bani Umayyah based on what is in Nahj al-Balagha. So that's Bani Umayyah in, in general. But there is one person in particular in Bani Umayyah who is really problematic in the eyes of Nahj al-Balagha, in the Shi'i school of thought of course, and we don't, and the Shi'i school of thought won't have a problem with him because he's, he, they call him a Sahabi. This is a misunderstanding that some people have that the Shia have issues with the Sahaba just because they're Sahaba. No, every person has their own report card. And so, when we when we read Nahj al-Balagha, what we find is that yes, Ali ibn Abi Talib had major issues with Muawiyah in particular. In Nahj al-Balagha again, sermon sixty-one, famously. Amir al-Mu'mineen says, Look, after me, don't fight the khawarij. Now the khawarij of back then, they were extremists. They were problematic themselves. But he says, don't waste time on them. They're not the main issue. Why? Look, they're aiming for haqq and truth. They're mistaken. And so they got it all wrong. You don't waste time on these people as much as you spend time on who? Man talab al-batil fa'adrakahu. The one who aims for falsehood and actually hits the target. And here, Sayyidah Radi and everyone else actually have explained how who the Imam means by this line is of course Muawiyah. Yes. And so it is very clear in the Shi'i school of thought that this is a problem. This was a problem. This individual was problematic. What are we talking about again? We're talking, we're trying to go back, back, back and see why did Ashura take place though? How is it possible the grandson of the Holy Prophet killed in this manner? The Prophet would speak so highly of him. It's not that just 10, 20 people like some movie where there's bad guys and good guys. Hundreds of people will just draw their swords on somebody and like, let's just be evil. Is that how things are? That's not real life. That's a movie, brothers and sisters. In real life, things add up and lead up to these tragedies taking place. And people going so low, yes, that they will allow such, such things to take place. In uh, the famous book of Ikhtiyar Ma'rifat al-Rijal of Al-Kashi, of course, Ikhtiyar uh, Ma'rifat al-Rijal is really in, it's for Shaykh al-Tusi, but it's the abridged version of the Rijal book of Al-Kashi. In there you have lots of accounts of different companions um, of the Imams. And so um, one of those under Amr bin al-Hamiq, there's a story there as well. It's long. I'm just going to share with you the part that we need. 
it's a correspondence between Al Hussein salam and Muawiyah. Muawiyah sends a letter to Imam Hussein. He says, I've heard that you know you have problems with me and you're doing stuff behind my back and stuff like that. Imam Hussein replies and responds. I'm just taking a part of that letter out. He says, I do not wish to fight you or rebel against you, Muawiyah. But by Allah I fear. I've, but by Allah, I fear Allah in not engaging in such with you. So I'm not fighting you and I don't want to, but I'm afraid that Allah is going to be upset with me for not doing so. And I do not believe Allah is happy with not doing so. And that He will excuse me if I, and I'm afraid He won't excuse me if I don't have a valid excuse for not fighting you. Of course, um, our, our historians and our, our scholars, they've explained that Al Hussein al Islam, there are different reasons why He didn't a stand up against Muawiyah. And so he had, he had justification for that. And so Imam, the Imam here is saying, look, I have no choice but to not fight you. Or else there was no excuse. Like I would be in trouble with Allah if I didn't do so. And for not fighting you and your oppressive disbelieving friends who are actually the party of darkness and friends of the shayateen. Are you not the killer of Hujr bin Adi the, and the devout worshippers with him after you had promised them safety? Are you not the killer of Amr bin al-Hamiq, the righteous servant of Allah and companion of the Holy Prophet whom excessive worship had worn out? Are you not the one who took Ziyad as his own brother while he was of illegitimate birth and didn't belong to your father Abu Sufyan? In Islam, brothers and sisters, you cannot just call someone your brother when they're born illegitimately. Yes, that's not how things work, but they say that Muawiyah did so. And they have to, there will be explanations, of course, brothers and sisters, these polemics, these, these discussions, there will be back and forth. Other schools of thought will have answers to what we, we, we ask. And we will have counter, uh, we will have counter um, answers to that as well, to what they say. It goes back and forth, and it doesn't seem like it'll eventually end anywhere. Yes, in the end, every person has to look at the reasoning and the logic and you know, choose whatever is convincing for them. So he says, you're not, aren't you the one who took Ziyad, the father of Ubaidullah bin Ziyad? You took him as your own brother, you're not allowed to do that in Islam. Anyway, it goes on and on the list of uh, the things that the Imam says in this letter. That's about Muawiyah in particular. So we had the Bani Umayyah in general. We had, the Bani, uh, we had Muawiyah in particular, we also have Marwan in particular. Because if you remember, we said, it says Alu Marwan isolates them as well. Well, who was Marwan? We don't have time to go into the history of Marwan and who he was. Just a couple of things in Nahjul Balagha. Um, one of them in Nahjul Balagha and one about history regarding Marwan. So we know that, okay, this person was also a problem. Um, it says here in Nahjul Balagha, Sermon 73. It says that, yes, he was, uh, Marwan was in the Battle of Jamal fighting against Amir al-Mu'mineen. And when he was taken prisoner, after the battle of Jamal, he asked Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein to intercede for him. And asked Ali ibn Abi Talib to forgive him and so on. And that I give my bay'ah to Ali and so on. And so they asked their father, like, Father, this is what he's saying. And you know, he's, re he's reached out to us. And the Imam he says, I don't need his bay'ah. Didn't he give me bay'ah before? This hand of his, it's kaffun yahudiyya. It's a yahudi hand. That means it's going to be. It's something that is accompanied with, uh, with with uh, deceit and deception and so on. I don't need his bayah. 
And I know that the Ummah is going to have a day from him and his and for that of his descendants. Yes, that uh, the Ummah is going to have a red day, bloody days ahead because of them. And when you look at history, you see that that is what happened when the Marwanites came to power. What happened is all bloodshed after that, brothers and sisters. Marwan is the one who was kicked out from Medina after the conquest of Mecca, where he and his father, Al-Hakam, were forced to embrace Islam. Uh, they went to Medina afterwards. They bothered, and Al-Hakam especially bothered the Holy Prophet so much that the Prophet sent him out of Medina, kicked him out, along with his son Marwan. And it's only when Uthman came to power that Marwan comes back to Medina, right? Because they were cousins. He was of Bani Umayyah and so was Uthman. And we'll get to that later, inshallah. He's the one who, uh, Marwan is the one who didn't allow Imam al-Hassan to get buried by the Holy Prophet. He's the one who, uh, when the initial command came that we got, we, had, we need bay'ah from al-Hussein in Medina, he's the one who pushed the governor of Medina to take the life of Imam Hussein right there if he's not going to give bay'ah on the spot. Marwan has a very dark report card, brothers and sisters. Once again, um, there will be some who will uh, revere him. But the Shi'i school of thought has its reasons to believe that no, Marwan was a huge, huge problem. Um, and we'll get to some of the details of that, inshallah, as we go through this series. So rulership, brothers and sisters, it was supposed to be with the Bani Hashim in the eyes of the Shi'i school. It ended up in the hands of the Bani Umayyah. What happened that this took place? Was it just handed to the Bani Umayyah instead of Bani Hashim? What took place? What happened? What led to that? These are things that we need to cover, inshallah, in these future nights so that we know... Yes, we, and we understand how Ashura took place. If these are the enemies, then how is it that they uh, come to power? I just want to end with this, that uh, when we keep saying Bani Umayyah, Bani Hashim and all of that, there are two points actually I want to make here before I end. Number one is that, well, what is the relationship between Bani Umayyah and Bani Hashim? The relationship is that they are distant cousins. Distance in, distant in the sense that um, when you go up the family trees of each of them, you will find that they will, th this family tree will become one and they will meet at a person by the name of Abdul Manaf. Uh, and so they are distant cousins at the end of the day. Yes. And this is why some people, they, it's hard for them to call out the Bani Umayyah. Because they say, look, at the end of the day, they were close relatives of the Holy Prophet. That's true. But in the end, it is every person and their own actions once again. So Bani Umayyah and Bani Hashim, they are related. They're not to be seen as two tribes that have nothing to do with each other. Yes, there was a subtle competition between them and rivalry between them, of course. And this is where the second point comes. That some people say, look, when Islam came, all of this tribalistic talk ended. Why are you making it a tribalistic discussion and discourse again? Bani Hashim versus Bani Umayyah. Yes, when the Holy Prophet came, there were some of Bani Hashim who didn't embraced the faith like Abu Lahab, his uncle, and others, they didn't. His other uncle, Abbas, it took him a while to embrace. He had to become prisoner in one of the battles against the Prophet, and so on and so forth. There were cousins of the Prophet that did not believe, and they were Bani Hashim. And on the flip side, there were some of the Bani Umayyah, like Uthman, like Um Habibah, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. These were Bani Umayyah who embraced Islam. So why are you making it a Bani Hashim versus Bani Umayyah matter? The answer that is given here, brothers and sisters, is that no, that's not the point. 
when it is said that Bani Hashem Khilafah was supposed to end up there, ended up in Bani Umayyah who, were, who became enemies of Islam later. It's not, we're not speaking in the context of the time of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet was so great, he broke those barriers, he broke those norms and he, he erased those lines, those tribalistic lines, this tribe versus that tribe. And so you had people, yes, embracing Islam because of Islam itself, not because it belongs to a person that is of the Bani Hashim, for example, quote unquote belongs, of course. But this is a reality that I pointed out in the beginning of the talk as well. That look, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we have to understand that the Bani Umayyah were some of the last ones, the main Bani Umayyah, like Abu Sufyan and Muawiyah and the rest, were the ones who it took them a long time to embrace Islam and by force at that, yes? Although some will say that Muawiyah had embraced Islam in secret a year before the conquest of Mecca. But what we have, and what a lot of uh, historians believe, is that no, Muawiyah alongside his father during the conquest of Mecca embraced Islam. So it was by force. And look, we have to be realistic. After all these years of animosity, this animosity isn't just going to fade away just like that. No, it will remain. And so after the Holy Prophet is when slowly you feel like this whole rivalry really is boldened again. And some of that jahiliyyah comes back to haunt the Muslim Ummah. And so when it is said that, yes, Bani Umayyah versus Bani Hashim, it's in that context. Or else, yes, during the Holy Prophet's time, these lines were erased. Unfortunately, after the Holy Prophet, we feel, based on historical facts, uh, that these lines came back again. And that is that was one of the main things that played a role in uh, things leading up to what they did in the 61st year after Hijrah and what happened in Karbala. Inshallah, in the future lectures, what we're going to go through are going to be these main points, one after another, these dots that we're going to connect to see what led to Ashura taking place. Some of it was luck, some of it was skill. Walhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yeah.